we're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. This is Beyond the Pass, conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality, and what makes us get out of bed each day. Welcome to the last episode of season one of Beyond the Pass. We are so excited to have Baker extraordinaire Dan Leppard as our guest for this episode. Uh, Baker feels at once totally the right way to describe you and also not quite the right way to describe you. And so I'm hoping that you will introduce yourself for us. My name is Dan Leppard. I, I bake, but I you know, in my life, I've, I, I write, I photograph. And like many people, I, I seem to be juggling lots of skills and tasks. Some I do quite well, some I fail at. But, you know, I hopefully um, the whole bundle is clear to people. Um, and I know that you started as a fashion photographer before you ended up in pastry and then subsequently bread and subsequently now all of the other bits. Um, what motivated that change in career? Um, I, I wasn't, I, I think I, I think I'd gone as far as I could being a photographer. I think I had, a limited, um, limited skills, limited creativity within that. And maybe on some level I didn't quite connect with clothes and I connect better with food. It could be that too. So I drew a line under it and I, just by chance, uh, went to see a chef who said, do you want to just try a day or so working on the pastry section? And that's where I started. And that's pretty much where I am today. Um, how did you end up, did you have an interest in baking like when you were growing up or was it something that was happening in your house? Like, is there a reason that when that opportunity presented itself, you were like, yes, absolutely. I'd love to be in this basement kitchen of London rolling some pastry. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, um, I'm sure lots of cooks will talk about their, their mother's uh, cooking. Um, I also had a, a school teacher at primary school who taught us how to make hot cross buns. And she did this weird thing where she put a crushed vitamin C tablet in. And this is, I don't know, this is in the 70s. And I thought that was just so wild that you you took a pill and you crushed it up and put that in in your, your bread to make to to help them sort of get get a lighter crumb and things so I think the science got to me quite early on and I was in love with it and you were with Alistair Little in Soho right that's right and that would have been the role I mean it's a pretty wild place to cut your teeth and like a particular moment in time definitely in the city and in the restaurant sort of history of London what was your experience like when you were starting out like were the the best things and the worst things I I coming from almost a, a a fairly easy and not too not too hard graft uh job as a photographer where it, i mean i had assistants and it was about films and things and then going into the kitchen it was like going into a kind of rehab there was rubbish to be taken out there was floors to be swept there were dishes to do and at first i think i thought i thought I, I was like Elizabeth Taylor at Betty Ford. I thought it all was all rather, rather fun <laughs> to do these things. It was a little further down, I realised, I, well, I realised they, they just got to me after a bit. Well, it's very important to to um, know the basics, I think, because uh, I, I think they give you confidence. 
in fashion and lots of sort of industries in the arts, the person who is holding the camera has a lot of power. So as the photographer, like there's a certain command that you have and there's a certain reverence that you receive. And I think when you start in a kitchen at the very bottom of the ladder, it's exactly the opposite. And it's interesting to me how that transition of more powerful to less powerful, the way that that might inform your sensibility in a career or what it might teach you. It's a fascinating transition. I must confess though, I, I've been told I was incredibly difficult from the outset. I didn't take prisoners, I shouted a lot. Um, and I just, I, I always did what I wanted to do, which meant that I could work in some kitchens better than other kitchens. So I, in a Michelin kitchen, I don't, I don't work so well. I mean, I probably do today, but I didn't back then. Did you come up against the rigidity of the hierarchies there or was it the actual baking? that you found bad to work in? It was always the hierarchies, but were they bad? I mean, well, yes, I'm just trying to think. I, The kitchens that I didn't enjoy working in, I, I think I avoided them. I think I judged the, the people before I judged the food in the places I was going to work in. I think being a gay man, I learned to read read the room and read situations we all do i think all lgbtq people we um we look and see will we be attacked will we be shouted at will we um uh, are we in danger so since i was in my 30s when this happened i'd i'd had a good sort of 15 or odd years of of trying to ascertain what's their danger in a work situation or in a life situation so in choosing a, a place to work, I chose a place that I felt was safe. I think that's the experience of so many minorities in kitchens. And particularly, it's interesting to me, and like I'm a gay woman, and it provided me a level of protection in kitchens because men knew that they, I just dealt with less sexual harassment. And it's really fucked up that that's the case. But I know that for my friends that are gay men in those spaces, the opposite is true. Like it actually endangers them. And the difference in the, like depending on what gender you are, your experience of being queer in those spaces is so vastly different. Yes. And I yes. think that I know chefs particularly that just follow whoever the head chef is or depending on their job, they just follow them around. And they're like, I honestly don't care where I cook. That's not what it's about. I want to be able to show up at work and be myself and not be fearful, not live in that state of fear. And that that's what guides them into different roles. And it has very little to do with like, oh, I'm so passionate about this cuisine or that cuisine. And mm. it's interesting to me when we trace the career paths of queer chefs, how different those paths look because it isn't just about following ingredients or cooking styles or certain like chefs or genres. It's so much more complicated because you're navigating so much more in the workplace. I must add in here too, that, that I'm also protected by, by a degree of privilege all the time, particularly being a white male. Uh, I can be in countries where it is punishable by, by death to be a, a, an openly gay man, yet be protected because I'm a white man. And that, that, uh, that pains me, that hurts me. And I, I, I don't know what to do about that for the people who or, or double or triple sort of abuse in the workplace. I think it's interesting because the most comfortable places that I've ever worked are when 
there's when you're not the only one of anything on the staff, the more diversity that there is in a kitchen or in a restaurant, I think ultimately the more comfortable, safe and successful people tend to feel. And I think what happens, and we see it all the time, is that because it's so hard to find those places and to maintain a sense of safety, particularly like you pointed out, if you're at the intersection of a bunch of different minorities, that we lose so many good people so that there doesn't end up being that leadership. And I mean, all you have to do is look at like, like what just passed, which awards, the GQ restaurant awards. And like a lot of phenomenal places got honored and like well, well deserved. But I was looking at the work Instagram that day and going through it and like absolutely all white, like 98%, largely men and most of them I know to be straight. And it's not that those people are undeserving, but it also means that if you look up and you don't see anybody who reflects your experience, it doesn't give you the same motivation to stay in that industry. You're not like, oh, maybe one day if I work hard, that's where mm. I can be. These are the circles that I might travel in because you don't know if those circles are going to be safe for you. And we see it so much here. And it's crazy to me in a city like London because it is so diverse and there are so many different kinds of people that work in hospitality. Mm. And yet it's still such a pervasive problem because you have now been in the industry for quite a long time. Like you would, what year would it have been? It would have been about 1990 or 91, probably 90. 31 years ish. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> Can I tell you the only reason why I could do that math so quickly is because I was born in 1990 <laughs> and I know my own yes. age. <laughs> Sometimes I'd say... I say to younger cooks, you know, I talk about a restaurant and they'll say, did you ever get to eat there? And they'll say, I wasn't born there, chef. <laughs> I feel very old. <laughs> well, you should also feel very lucky because they didn't get to enjoy the fruits of that restaurant. But I'm wondering about what, how you've experienced the change. Mm. Yes, yes. And I I think, though, we, we, we have to think that the... The good time is now. That the good time is is where we are now, and that's that's the important thing. And did you notice particular? Not like watershed is too dramatic, but can you remember looking around at some point and being like, "Oh, this feels different now." Like, could you feel that? Was there a palpable sort of moment for you? Well, yes. I mean, I stepped into a time when chefs were trying to to keep ingredients um, intact and whole in their flavor and in their appearance from the, the soil to the table. But I remember probably in about 1998, 1999, there were different chefs that, that say like Heston, who wanted to focus on the transformation and power that a chef could have over an ingredient and I think that typifies a certain type of cooking where you can make the 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 carrot taste like a chicken or you can turn beef into duck or um and I had no interest in this I had no interest at all so maybe I noticed it because I thought this isn't me uh so I think for there were many, many chefs who almost went slightly underground because they just couldn't connect with this element of food transformation. I don't know how to describe it. Like a, I am all powerful, like quite like a very ego driven way to cook. 
and that can produce excellent food, but it's also, if that's the only lane in which to travel and be successful, you do end up excluding so many people whose passion for it lies in a different space. Oh, absolutely. And I, I am celebrating now that that style is disappearing. I, I feel happy every day that, that it's going away. And there are so many great young cooks who will, you know, pick up a, a carrot or a potato and just marvel at it and think, how can I, how can I hold on to everything about this and, and just deliver it as food? And that's, that's just, just so exciting. I'm really thrilled by the way that we have started to celebrate flavors to your point for exactly what they are. And like, I've had tomatoes, I've had carrots that have tasted like the most carroty carrot I've ever carroted. And it is fucking unbelievable because it's exactly what it is. And that to me is so much more interesting in a way than doing some kind of wizardry because I don't, that impresses us, but I don't think that we connect to it in the same way. Uh, oh, ab- absolutely. I, I, um, I always, I admire skills. I admire all skills. Um, just there are some that I don't personally find useful or attractive. Really, the the skill of being able to terrify young chefs in a kitchen is not something I I want to have. I don't want to be known for the speed of my knife work. These are not things I've ever aspired to, but I aspire to have the observational skills of of a cook, say like uh, Fergus Henderson and and Margot Henderson. I aspire to their ability to appreciate nuances in different ingredients. That's what I want. And it's interesting because when I watch the Australian Baking Bible videos, I get this sense from you very, very much that it's there's something intuitive about taste, texture, method. It's not the whole palava. It like it feels so natural. I think the chefs that are the most exciting for me to watch work in any capacity or even recipe development or literally sitting at a counter and being able to see them are where you get that sense of just sort of an organic relationship, which with whatever the thing is, and you can get the feeling that it's been derived out of years of practice, trying different smells, textures, experiences from other chefs. And it wasn't like developed in this silo. It was developed in conversation with culture, mm-hmm. with ingredients, with history. I mean, I'm really showing my color. I'm really showing my bias, I should say, but that's truly, I think what makes feeding other people nice. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I remember, maybe it was about 10, 12 years ago, uh, reading an interview with Ferran Adria, where he was talking about how bread didn't interest him, baking didn't interest him. And I thought, I think that's clear. I think it's clear that it doesn't, because I don't get a sense of much more than a kind of impenetrable surface. It's almost like a, a, a creation to keep the I was going to say consumer, customer at a distance rather than something that is is truly evocative and and makes every mouthful recall other meals, other flavors, other other times in 
in that person's life. There's something about certain roles in kitchens and particular items, and bread is one of them, where there is a gendered element to them. I think so too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's interesting, right? So there's like the idea of like who bakes bread, right? It's something that like a wife or a mother does in a home. And I sometimes wonder if like certain chefs, if the reason that they're all like, mm, and like a bit, a bit dismissive of it is because it's that sort of traditionally female role in food prep. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, fermentation has only become a thing when men have started doing it. Um, before then, it, you know, the predominantly the sort of women in communities, whether they be in East Asia, um, uh, Japan, in the Ukraine, who are um, preserving and uh, fermenting things, uh, their work is is overlooked. Um, and when a man does it, when I do it, it gets recognized. And uh, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> that's just wrong. I also, it does uh, reflect like a larger pattern in the world, you know? It's not, you know, what's free from those structures. I'm not sure anything is. But what I'm curious about in the way that your relationship to it works is when you understand your own legacy, you're responsible for like some of the most famous bread in the city, Odalengi, St. John, like all these restaurants that are like staples and their bread particularly is like absolutely, yeah, it's a bit legendary, I guess. Did you have a sense of your place in like the bread canon when those moments were happening? Do you understand it that way now? I went into baking because I thought I can make a difference. It's, it's only been of late that I can see the difference. And even then I'm sort of a spark that lights a, a kind of kindling that, that exists. So w without the interest in what I do, without the support of, of what I've done, it wouldn't have happened. Many people can have great ideas, and but it needs it needs people to support them. And I feel very fortunate that I had some great talents and lovely people who supported me, um, and and gave me the 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 stage and everything I needed in order to perform these these bread events or bread moments. Um, I always try to think about how the flour, how the water, how the, the, the fermentation, how everything fits the place I'm in. I think that's, that's uh, extremely important. Um, I'd really love to know when you were at the beginning of the road and you're, you were motivated by your capacity to make a change and make a difference, how did you understand that change that you wanted to make then? I think because I, I'd always lived an alternate life. Even if I didn't consider it, it I, someone would remind me that I wasn't normal all the time. So I was always looking for something alternative. I think I was always thinking that my place was in doing what other people aren't doing. And I think that's a, probably a queer sensibility. We just assume we belong away from the mainstream. So in my approach to bread, I just automatically thought I need to be the opposite to the mainstream. Whatever they're doing, I'm not. Wherever they're going, I'm not. So what are you left with? At the time, creating complex flavors in fermentation, creating a crumb structure that wasn't homogenous, uh, using different grains. I used to be incredibly um, wild and creative with fermentation. Now, 
perhaps slightly less so, but only because it, it all got out of hand. <laughs> Sometimes there was one, I remember when I was with uh, John Turode and we were setting up the, this place in Mezzo in Wardo Street, and I'd, I'd got a, a huge bin that I had made this, this flower balm that I swear was boiling when I came into work. It was just kind of, who knows how toxic it was. It was really terrible, but it was all boiling away. And I, I wanted to do that because I just wanted my own place that was away from mainstream. Because I didn't, I never felt that mainstream liked me. I never felt that mainstream uh, would look after me. So I think I felt my safe place was as an alternative baker. It created also, it created space because I was able to say, I disagree with you, you were wrong. I believe in what I'm doing and nothing you say will change me. In society, in life, there is a space for those people and a um, importance to have voices that, that speak out. And I was, my, my baking was doing that. It's hard for me to comprehend the bravery and the courage that it would have taken to have that much self-belief and to take up that much space. The space that you created for yourself has now brought to the world like something so incredible. And that like, what a beautiful gift. And yeah, I just, I don't have a question. I'm just really impressed by you. <laughs> well, 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 that's, that's really lovely to, to uh, hear that. And um, I, and I try and say it to about other people who I feel have made a difference. In fact, whenever I'm with someone and, and I think, that I, I like to say thank you. I think going into situations with a sense of gratitude, just just for all you have, even the 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 wounds you carry, probably makes the day a little bit lighter. At that time in the industry, like in the nineties, even early two thousands, did you have friends or peers in the industry that were also queer? Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Um, right from the start. So uh, when I started at Alistair Littles, it was Juliet Peston who was a, a loud, proud, uh, lesbian, queer woman, activist. He was absolutely an inspiration. Jeremy Lee was in the kitchen as well at that time, as was Allegra McEverdy. Uh, Alistair made it a safe space. Stay with uh, Giorgio Locatelli, it was a stricter kitchen, but but... You, I mean, I, you know, I can't help but be charmed by, by Italian cooking. So you could just loved it, <laughs> just loved it. Gail from Gail's was a huge part of of my life. Yeah, there's so many, so many things I was able to create because she said, "Just do it, just do it." I love it. Just do it. Not everybody says that. When there's like trust and belief and freedom in an individual. Mm. And if you have somebody that truly believes in you enough that says, yes, this is my business. It's my, in that case, the namesake, like my name's on the door and I'm just going to let you do that thing because I believe in your capacity. And that is when I think we see true sort of delight and innovation and excitement. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I don't understand people that are the, the, that simply feel oppressed because it's not their business or it's, it's not a company that they own. Um, I, though I haven't set up a, a, a bakery of my own, I was always completely um, just, just inspired by all the bakeries that, and all the offers that I had. It's an interesting idea, that sense of ownership. And I think that there's a way to facilitate a culture where there's a real sense of shared ownership in what's happening in the business. 
And exactly what you're describing, that idea of like, this is your wheelhouse, like you go and you do that thing. And it doesn't need to be your name on the lease to understand that you're integral and to be respected as a really important part of the business. And I think that why people often feel oppressed in that structure, you can say, I really believe in your talent. Thank you so much for everything you do for this business. But then what actually happens in the workplace in terms of pay, labor, it doesn't actually reflect that those words and people become really discouraged. And I also think that there's a lot of exploitation in that margin. It, it will be interesting to see how the future pans out because I, I, I do understand the pressures that, that uh, a lot of small businesses are under to sort of pay the wages, pay the overtime to, to um, reward fairly for the work's done that's done. But I do also see them often not paying themselves and um, just closing down the business because it, it wasn't personally sustainable, but because by the time they'd looked after everybody else, there was no money or energy to look after themselves or their, their partners. The big horrible names get everybody's attention and there's lots of smaller companies that will probably find um, the the changes made because of these these arguably criminal sort of uh, restaurateurs and, and, and big companies that will find them hard to shoulder because the bad actions of a few have contorted the whole industry. Not to bum us out, but it's a really depressing trajectory because between inflation, but also the issue around rents in the city and insurance and all mm, of these costs mm, mm. have been taking up so much space for such a long time. And the reality is, is that if you want to run your small restaurant or your small bakery ethically, where you're really fairly compensating people, where you're not, the hours are reasonable, where people have a work-life balance, you can't afford to run that kind of a small business ethically in London. Like mm, the economics- This is the problem. It doesn't, like I've seen the math does not work. I often wonder like, what is our job and how can we, aside from going out and spending our money there, how can we, what can we do about that? And I'm not sure that there is something. I think it has to come from landlords, from the government. Like, I don't even know where those solutions are, but I know that we will suffer and the vitality of food here will suffer if we don't start to, find solution to that like economic problem look at a, a country like japan where there's vibrant food everywhere there's also extreme overwork extreme tiredness uh people underpaid undervalued there's so many bad things that are making it this lovely place as a tourist to go and eat the food i watch shows on netflix where looking at the work that the workers are putting in and i don't want to taste the food at the end i just want them to have a nice home and a bed that's why i'm just watching this thing i hope it ends where she gives it up and then she has a nice home and a bed <laughs> yeah absolutely and you would get this working in kitchens all the time where somebody would get a job outside the industry or more industry adjacent that meant they were working nine to five they weren't going to do 100 hours a week and that could be the most talented person on our team and we would be so happy for them mm. and that really demonstrates something very very broken about the way mm. that labor is set up but let's not stay here where it's depressing um i'm really curious about your relationship to australian baking and particularly looking at and i know that you think and talk a lot about reconciling historical methods 
I'm wondering how your relationship to Australia as a nation, and you moved to England when you were quite young, right? Was it a product of homesickness that you spent so much time in Australian baking? Oh, no. Well, the thing was, I didn't spend any time from about, um, I mean, I... uh... From about 1980 to 2000, it was very expensive to to travel between between the countries. It was uh, it was a cheap, uh, affordable travel. Maybe it was in the early noughties it really started to become available. Um, I went back a little as a photographer, but I didn't really in the 1990s uh, go back to Australia. So I most of most of my baking was was. Um, was just in the UK but and, and also my inspiration because the internet wasn't really working so I had no idea what people are doing and it was only I met my my husband in 98 and it was only when together in about 2000 2001 we started going back to Australia uh, that I started to see things in Melbourne and and also the food culture the, the, when we think of great Australian food, um, what we think of great Australian food today didn't qu- quite exist in the 1980s. Um, though, though I loved, I loved Melbourne and Sydney very much then. I don't want to say they weren't. It, it's not that they've become better places. They've just almost transformed into a, a different, different sorts of cities. And uh, it's always looking to be modern always looking to to go forward whereas in britain it's almost the well it's a little bit the opposite <laughs> try to go backwards <laughs> i'm wondering what is the thing that surprised you the most when you did start going back in the early 2000s the first bakery that really caught my eye was daniel chirico's and he just opened up in st kilda would this have been about 2002 maybe 2001 2002 and i I just walked past it. It was in a street around the corner from where my, my sister lives in, and my mother lives in St Kilda. And I just thought, this looks amazing. He was just, he'd, he was cut from a different cloth. And in many ways, he he started this this big change in bread in Melbourne. There had been a, a bakery set up 15 years before by um, a guy called John Downs, who arguably is this grandfather of baking. And John is this, is a queer man. He's he's uh, lovable, cantankerous, difficult. He's all things. <laughs> he's all things. And he's very hardcore purist baker and, and quite a marvel. And he had a bakery called Natural Tucker and uh, Daniel Chirico and a few other bakers had worked there. But it was when Daniel stepped out, I think other bakers started to step out too. There's a, there was a wonderful vegan bakery called Fruition up in Healesville with these extraordinary wood-fired ovens, amazing breads. There's also a kind of strong, not sure that hippie is the, quite the right word because it's evolved. Most of these grain festivals that are popular now come from a very folk appreciation of the land and respect of the land. Did you see a distinction between the two countries and the way that they were understanding their own relationship to historical reconciliation? Well, I don't know that either have, have they, really? I mean, Australia has a long way to go. I mean, they're, they're good at seeing the problems in the past. America's like this too. They're really good at seeing the problems in the past as British. And yeah, absolutely, we cause so many, so many things. But, you know, you've had a long time since then to fix stuff up. And if you are still in, in, a, in the situation you are, 
you've got to look at yourselves. And I think in both countries, I despair because I think you've got to sort your problems out with each other. You've, you, you actually have to, instead of talking about six generations ago, you've just got to go back one generation. You've got to go to your parents and you've got to say, what the hell are you doing? Change. Look, and I've had that conversation with my mother in Australia, and but I think that um, we all have to have that responsibility in our countries to say you've got to treat each person as 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 diverse and individual. You've got to respect their heritage. You've got to, you've just got to like make the change today. I think it's interesting the way that it ties into food culture, and we see it a oh. little in the way that different diasporas that that cuisine is starting to see it elevated and starting to see it being oh. taken more seriously but certainly not enough and when big like things like michelin like they're still so white so colonists like mm. it's a good situation but i do think that the more we have an honest reconciliation with our own histories the more fun we can have with food there's that but also we're making other people's lives better we're we're no longer um making people the butt of jokes or talking about their their food as cheap or dirty. These are phrases that are still used today. And by today, I mean yesterday. Today, you know, it was um, Sejel pointing out to a magazine that, that using the phrase cheap eats about the food of different diasporas is, is just, you just got to stop it. Just stop it. And to their credit, they did. <laughs> so <laughs> they said, you're absolutely right. And we've changed it. Say, that, that's what it needs. All of it. We've got to go through the whole of Britain, the whole of Australia, the whole of America, the whole of the world and say, OK, just stop this now. Um, and it's not woke enough. <laughs> I mean, it's not we're not awake enough. We're not we're not in touch enough. Yeah. We see it when there's industry leaders or people that had really illustrious careers that are really respected by the press, et cetera, et cetera, when they stand up behind something, whether that's looking at, I mean, uh, who's the name of the chef who you love in Madison Park, making it vegetarian? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Daniel Hume, maybe is his name? Yes. Now I'm forgetting. But when you have somebody who's lauded, who stands up and says, actually, no more of that, or we're going to pay attention to food systems, or even like the way that we're going to, I'm um, Chantal Nicholson at Upper City. Oh. And the, I mean, her restaurant is unbelievable. And everything down to the decor is sustainable and renewable. And when people who have sort of followings or, and have amassed some sense of power, when they start to sh shout about things or just stand behind things or change the way that they're doing their businesses, people pay attention. And I personally look to industry leaders quite often and think to myself, where are you? We're having a conversation uh, uh, uh. about being a minority in the workplace. We're having a conversation about how women are treated in the workplace. All of these things are happening off like the back of Me Too and Black Lives Matter and all these social movements. And I'm thinking to myself, like, where are these guys who we've all supported and we've given them their stars and we've made them wealthy and we've given them franchises? Where are they in this conversation and why aren't they standing there? That's sort of what I hope to see. The more that we cheerlead people who do say something, the more people will feel a sense of not obligation, but uh, will feel empowered to say things out loud, whether that's to the press, to their own teams, to other business owners, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think we, we both know that the reason people fear um, speaking out about the wrongs they see is that they'll think, well, I won't be employed. I won't be offered that 
that space in a, in a magazine or newspaper. I won't be seen as protecting a small cult within, within a, a minor industry. They feel that they'll lose their stars, their glamour. And to that, I would say, think about the people who are giving it to you. Think about the people who, are with, who may withhold this from you and how important is it to you, really, truly. Does it honestly affect your sales or do they simply take credit for your sales? And we've seen that on Twitter where a food critic will come out and say, I made you, I was your success. And I'd argue that's bullshit, actually. It, that, that isn't true. People went to the restaurant because they liked the food, they liked the cooking, they liked the room. It wasn't because one day in a minor newspaper, you blurted out that you'd, you'd had a rather good chapati there, you know. And also, it's such an interesting relationship because, yes, you may have driven people there to eat one time. Mm. No restaurant, and we see this all the time with restaurants that get really, really hyped, is that people go once, they eat, they're like, mm, yeah, it was tasty, and they never go back. Oh, absolutely. And it's the same with food writers. I can think of food writers who are absolutely lauded in, in, in the, the food press, whose books just tank that just don't sell because to the readers, to the consumers, they couldn't give a shit. They just, you just think, what what kind of uh, sort of fluffery is this? Just connect more, connect with people more, connect with the world more, um, do that. That that usually solves a lot of business problems. If you get your selling right, if you get your your intention right, if you, if you speak loudly and do brilliant work that that goes a long way to building a good business if you're spending yeah. your time making a carrot taste like a carrot and not like a chicken i'm coming back to eat oh, absolutely <laughs> on that note we are coming up to the end of our time i just want to ask you some quick fire questions okay if you could go to one london restaurant for the rest of your life what restaurant would it be st john what's your favorite dessert uh, lemon meringue pie. Most frustrating part of British culture? Fearfulness. Favorite view in London? Can I say my husband? Yes. <laughs> Phenomenal answer. Uh, what's your favorite sauce? Oh, a mayonnaise. I have to. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, who's your dream dinner guest? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And do you have anything coming up that you want to shout about? What do I want to shout about? I just want to shout about everything that everybody's doing right now. I just think that yourself, so, so many people are trying to make the world and Britain a better place. And I just, I'm amazed and uh, very proud to, to, to help. I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's really been a pleasure. Uh, Rachel, thank you. Uh, Yes, and I, I hope um, every anyone listening, I hope you can just take something from this and and be really proud about who you are and what you do. And eat some bread. Eat good bread. And eat some bread. <laughs> Beyond the Past is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at Kelly's Cause.